the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week at Calvary Chapel on the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and we're here to answer your questions, Bible questions, questions on life, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-630. KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I hope you had a great weekend at church. I pray that uh, all went well. I pray that people got saved. Everybody gets saved. We're one person closer to Jesus coming. Uh, We had a great time. Lots of new people still, and that's a a wonderfully encouraging thing, uh, just that people are getting back uh, into uh, the, the flow of everyday life, and especially that which is important, fellowshipping with other believers. I had a, a precious couple that had been at our church for many, many years, and uh, they've been away from church, uh, necessarily. Um, they've got somebody in their house that they care for uh, who is high risk, and uh, and yesterday was the first time they were so happy, we were so happy to see them, so it was really, really great. Hey, tonight, just as a reminder, our Sweet Summer Devotion series continues for the ladies. Uh, All you have to do at 7 o'clock, you can go to calvaryessay.com. But remember what Paula always says, it's much better if you're here because you can participate in the Q&A. And our speaker tonight is Sabina Croft, and uh, uh, she just graduated from high school. She is the youngest of all of the ladies who are sharing this year, uh, and absolutely delight, loves Jesus with all of her heart, and I'm excited to hear what she has to say. So that's at 7 o'clock. At the same time, our men's Bible studies will be going on as well, and uh, uh, we also have our youth, high school, and junior high school age kids, so it can be a family affair, and we have child care for the really, really young ones. So there's no reason not to be here. Okay, let's go to some questions as we await your phone calls. The first one comes from Jason, and he asks, does your church believe in the five-fold ministry? Um, Jason, that's misunderstood. Let me explain where that comes from. It's from Ephesians chapter 4. And speaking of Jesus, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. There's a couple of things here that uh, I want to point out because that's a misunderstanding of what this is. Jesus uh, gives gifts, and the gifts are to, to prepare God's people for the works of service. And that is sort of a composite 
uh, Jason, of all the time that from the beginning God gave some who were apostles, we know who they were, some to be prophets, the New Testament prophets. We have some of them identified in the New Testament. Certainly all of the writers of the of the Bible, the epistles, are New Testament prophets. And again, there are others who are named. Uh, evangelists certainly were people like Apollos who would travel around and go from place to place. And uh, in that case, um, many people would get saved. And then there were some who were appointed pastors. Elders is the term that's used uh, in the New Testament. Uh, and those pastors, of course, had of teachers. So this doesn't talk about ministry that goes on currently. This isn't, okay, 2,000 years. We still have to have those five-fold uh, separations of, of responsibility. Uh, usually you see this in, in, in overly charismatic churches. Uh, they'll say, we believe in the whole gospel. And, and um, um, the truth is, Ephesians chapter 2 makes it clear that there are no more apostles today. There are also no more prophets. Those were foundational gifts given to the church, Ephesians 2.20, that have been laid. That's very important, the, the tense in Greek. And the church is being built on that foundation. So there's no more apostles and prophets. So if I said to you, of course we have a five-fold ministry, uh, that would make me out a false teacher because uh, apostles and prophets have already been given to the church as a gift. Now, there clearly are evangelists and there are pastors and there are teachers. The other thing that I want to point out here uh, on this one for you, Jason, is that uh, apostles, uh, I'm sorry, pastors and teachers are one gift, not two. The gift of teaching is assumed for pastors. Those in leadership must be able to teach. And so uh, that would be a fourfold ministry if you were to understand it the way that your question suggests you do. But but it would only be for and, and pastors and teachers. Certainly nobody could be a pastor without also having been given the gift of teaching. The truth is the gift of teaching is given to people who are not pastors. Uh, we have a whole bunch of women in our church who are wonderfully gifted Bible teachers, um, but but they can't be pastors because pastor is an office reserved for men. So um, um, to to understand that we need a fivefold ministry, because Ephesians four eleven says that's what was given to the church, uh, is to misunderstand the passage altogether. Good question, Jason. Thank you. I hope that makes sense. Go to our next question. It is from Walt. He said, can you discuss competition between Christians? An example uh, is Christians who are participating in sports, those kind of things. Um, You know, competition, I think, is always good. Uh, Competition is always good. I don't think there's anything wrong with competing. Christians should compete. Um, However, we have to compete as Christians. We can't compete like unbelievers do, nor can we compete in the sense that um, uh, we cut corners or we take shortcuts. You know, there's a lot of news in sports about cheating, especially in Major League Baseball. Um, I I grew up a baseball player, played college baseball. And, uh, you know, you think about Christians um, cheating and it just doesn't make any sense at all. But that's that's what's been happening. uh, I had a friend, uh, Walt, who was a uh, a pastor of a very large Calvary Chapel in Downey, California. And um, uh, they got really involved. They have a, a big school, large school. And they got really involved in an athletics program. They hired a coach. The coach was recruiting players to come in, especially in basketball. It turns out this Christian coach was cheating in recruiting and, and things. And so you don't compete the way the world competes. Christians are supposed to play by the rules. If that gives us a disadvantage, then we gladly accept that disadvantage to give us the opportunity to uh, to, to to be pleasing to the Lord. And and uh, I think all competition. I, I think it's good. I think personally, Walt, that kids need to learn to lose, and they need to learn to win. How much more so? when I'm talking about Christians. And I think this idea that we've got in our culture that everybody wins, everybody gets trophies, I think it's been really, really harmful. But but I think there ought to be avenues of competition because competition is healthy. 
It's a good thing. Sports is just one of those. Uh, I think uh, speech uh, contests, um, uh, debates, um, uh, other school clubs that, that compete, those are really, really good things. And uh, I think we need to learn to compete. We just need to do it differently than people in this world do. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for our first day of the new week. We'd love your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Paul. He says, Pastor Ron, I know a lot of unbelievers who are nicer and kinder than believers. How can this be if they don't have the Holy Spirit? Um, Paul, that's an interesting question. Uh, I've had people say to me, you know, I've been treated better by unbelievers than by by many Christians. You know, the truth is, Paul, is that flesh stinks. It doesn't matter whether it's coming from a believer or an unbeliever. Flesh stinks. I've communicated here at Calvary Chapel for years that, that if I get too far away from Jesus, my flesh is no better than it was the day I got saved. Now, hopefully I'm with Jesus more and the Spirit of God is ruling and reigning in my heart. But when my flesh rules and reigns, my flesh is still horrible. So what we've got to do as Christians is walk in the Spirit. And kindness, for an example, is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, with regard to your question about unbelievers, there's a lot of really nice people in this world, believers and unbelievers alike. I know some people that are so nice. I have a son. Our youngest son is one of the nicest men. I almost said young men, but he's not young anymore. He's 46. Uh, One of the nicest men in the world. Uh, But he's not a believer. He's not nice because he learned it from me. learned it watching his mom, probably. But the truth is, there's just a lot of really nice, kind, we would call them good people. And the problem is that goodness can't get us to heaven because only perfection can, and Jesus is the only source of perfection. So a couple of things, Paul. One, just understand that that unbelievers are just as nice, just as good, just as honest, as moral as Christians are. We also need to remember that we are Christians need to remember that people in this world are watching and we need to live demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. So kindness is simply a fruit of the Spirit in a Christian's life. When a Christian is unkind or unfair, um, um, unloving, uh, that's just a, a, a Christian who is dominated by his or her flesh. And flesh stinks. I want to repeat that. Just because you've been washed in the blood of Jesus doesn't mean that when you get in the flesh, it's not just as ugly. In fact, I would say it's even more ugly, but it's as ugly as the worst unbeliever in this world. Flesh stinks, always has, and always will. And that's why, Paul, we're told to walk in the Spirit instead of the flesh. Good question. Henry says, I don't believe in objective right or wrong. Why should I go to hell for believing this? You know, Henry, people who want to sin never believe in objective truth. So I'm not surprised as an unbeliever you don't believe in objective truth. Because if, if you believe in objective right or wrong, you know when you're doing wrong. So it's easier simply to explain it away, well, this isn't wrong for me, or I don't think this is wrong. But see, and this is something that we believers have got to be able to communicate to people like Henry. We don't get to make the rules. Human beings don't get to make the rules. Only God does. And Henry, whether you believe in objective right or wrong is irrelevant. What matters is, does God believe? And for not believing in him, for not believing in objective right or wrong, you're going to pay the price eternally. Now, nobody wants to go to hell. But we have to understand, in heaven, there's only going to be room for perfect people. Now, that doesn't mean that we Christians think we're perfect. In fact, I think the, the advantage, Henry, that I have personally over you is that I know I'm not perfect and you still believe in this lie that somehow you're good and what you do is okay. So the truth of the matter is, is we choose to go to heaven or hell 
And that choice is made on the basis of what we do with Jesus Christ. He is the only source of perfection. Very important. Remember, people that want to sin never believe in objective truth because that gets just a little bit too heavy for them. When you know you're doing wrong, you got to stop it and do right. Apart from the Spirit of God, faith in Jesus Christ, we don't want to believe that there are consequences for the choices we make. I hope that answers your question, Henry. We'll be praying for you. Lots of people will. Rhonda asked the question, are nightmares a sign that sin is in my life? Rhonda, I hope not, because nightmares is one of my crosses to bear. I I, I wish I didn't have nightmares, but I have these horrible nightmares all the time. And when I say all the time, it's not hyperbole. I mean, nearly every night I, I, I wrestle, I wake up sweating, and it's just, it's, I don't know, the enemy's pounding. I've got a, a vivid sub, subconscious, I don't know. But no, nightmares are not a sin of sign, I'm sorry, a sign of sin in your life. They're just nightmares. Uh, what I do, Rhonda, and, and I told you I'm plagued with them, so this doesn't um, help me escape them. But um, as I lay down every night, I ask the Lord, among other things in my prayers, Lord, protect us physically, but protect our dreams, our nightmares, our bodies physically. Protect our hearts. We want to wake up fresh to serve you. And a night that I don't have nightmares, Rhonda, is a wonderful blessing. But uh, for some of us, for some reason, uh, nightmares are there. Uh, I have nightmares that are sometimes demonic. Uh, That's not my fault. Um, I I wake up and have to remember who I am and that that I belong to Jesus. Um, But a lot of times my nightmares are just really strange things that I can't do anything about. So rest assured, Rhonda, um, there's nothing secret going on in your life, uh, and that's the reason for your nightmares. Um, Just sleep well as well as you can in the arms of Jesus every night. I really have empathy, compassion for those people who suffer from nightmares. It's been going on for me for a very long time. It's interesting that in my life, I hardly ever had nightmares before I got saved. And and now I hardly ever don't have nightmares um, um, since I've been saved. So uh, I, I'm sure there's a spiritual element in there uh, in some fashion or form. Uh, I just try not to worry about it. When I wake up in the morning, I just do my best to turn my attention consciously to the presence of the Lord. And um, if I've had a rough night, he takes care of it. Good question. Sleep well. Natalie says, Pastor Ron, I don't understand what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. Is it that his suffering was finished? Um, No, Natalie, what was finished, uh, and this is essential to our faith, our historic Christian faith, what was finished was his mission on earth. You know, one thing that we don't think about, every Christmas, you know, we talk about the baby Jesus, and, and, and we should, we really should. But but we don't often think that the m- moment Jesus was born, the moment he came through his mother's birth canal and entered this world as a human being, uh, he had one mission in life, and that mission was to die. He came to die for the sins of the world. Now, in the process of living, he offered salvation to the world, but his mission was to die. And Jesus, when he cried out at his finish, he was telling his father, your will is done, O oh God. It is finished. My job on earth, my mission is finished. And then it says he gave up his spirit. Uh, but he didn't give up his spirit until the job was done. So when he said it is finished, it's actually a Greek phrase to tell us die. And it's actually a business transition or transaction. And it's 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 really the debt is paid. And what he was declaring to his father and to those who could hear him is that the sins of the world are now paid for. And Natalie, the thing that we have to really be sad about is that while the sins of every human being who's ever lived have been completely paid for and nobody has to die and go to hell, the truth is very few 
receive the free gift of salvation that was offered by Jesus. And for me, because I couldn't pay my own debt, I'm like the parable Jesus told about the guy who uh, who somebody owed him a little tiny bit of money and after having been forgiven of an enormous amount of money, he refused to forgive that little debt. Uh, I'm like him. I couldn't have paid my debt. It was enormous. Jesus paid it all for me. And when he said it is finished, that was my path and Natalie, your path into heaven. So this didn't have anything to do with his suffering. This had everything to do with that was my mission. Now mission accomplished. The sins of the world have been paid for. And at that moment, the, the, the world, every human being had the absolute choice to be forgiven and go to heaven forever or to reject the free gift of Jesus Christ. Thanks for the question, Natalie. 340-9585. Let's go to our friend Harold on line one from San Antonio. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Um, I was going to ask you a question about John chapter 5, verse 39. Uh, I've been doing you know, a lot of research on it and cross-reference and what uh, other Bibles say, you know, in their uh, reference about that verse, you know, where it says, uh, uh, Jesus is speaking, where it says that, I don't have my Bible in front of me, but it says where you all look in the Scriptures for salvation instead of, I'm not sure if he says, looking at me or not. Mm-hmm. So, Wait, if you let me, let me read on that, it just, it just Yeah, let me, let me read. Yeah, Harold, let me read it, and then if you have a specific question about it, I'll answer it. It says, Jesus is speaking, he okay. says, to speaking to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, and then he scolds them, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So does, what, do you have a specific question, or do you just want me to comment generally on it? Uh, specifically, I was thinking, I mean, the way that people were viewing the Bible in that time back then, they found salvation in maybe reading the Bible, which maybe would have been the Old Testament back then. That, yeah. that type of thing. So I'll listen yeah, up there if you don't mind. That's fine, Harold. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. And and you understand it correctly. You know, in, in the, the, the time uh, and the people to whom Jesus was speaking— um, they believed, Jews believed, that because Moses was given the law, and, and Israel, of course, was God's chosen people, they believed that by having the law and doing the best they could to keep the law, that they were had a place that was secure in heaven. And, and uh, Jesus tells them, you know, you're diligently studying the scriptures, because you think that, that, that through the scriptures you have eternal life. But the truth is, if you really opened your heart and mind and studied the scriptures, you see that those scriptures were all about me. And you're right, it was the Old Testament scriptures, the Law of Moses uh, in particular. And uh, they simply believed that by doing the best to keep the law. Uh, they were always looking for loopholes around the law, Harold, but they, they believed that by keeping the law the best they could, that that was pleasing to God. And Jesus would later call them whitewashed tombs. He would say, on the outside you look good, but on the inside you're, you're, you're rotting, decaying flesh and bones. And, and Jesus just said, look, if, if you were really studying the scriptures, then you'd see that they're those scriptures are all and only about me. And now he's looking at those, these Pharisees. And remember, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, the high priest and the others, they actually were plotting Jesus' death for almost all of his ministry. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, the real important thing for us all these years later is the application it has for New Testament Christians. And Harold, truthfully, um, I know a lot of people that know a lot of Scripture, but their life is a mess. Jesus would tell his opponents that that uh, you know you 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 diligently 
tithe on your mint and your cumin. You you, uh, you you keep the little tiny matters of the law, but you ignore the, the, the weightier matters of the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor before yourself. And and they were actually going through separating 10%, this belongs to God, this belongs to me, this belongs to God, and, and they believed they were somehow justifying themselves. And, and still today, there are a lot of people who believe that by trying to be good or do good, well, somehow they're going to please God and they're going to get into heaven. And and as sad as it is for me to say this, there are a lot of professing Christians who believe that to be true, even now. Well, if I do more good than bad, God will let me in. The only way to get to heaven is Jesus Christ. And Jesus was just saying what he will say in John chapter 14, verse 6, to his own disciples. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. And he was telling that. He was giving them the opportunity. Uh, we're inside a minute, so let me just very quickly say, I, when I look at this passage of Scripture, Harold, I always think of, of how Nicodemus would have responded or how Joseph Arimathea would have responded. Would have cut him to the heart. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions let's go to cindy on line one from san antonio cindy thanks for calling you're on the air pastor ron how are you doing today i'm doing well i'm doing well cindy thank you I bet, since the weather's getting warmer, huh? Oh, Cindy, I can't tell you. The sun was out when I was doing my running and stuff this morning. I thought, finally, there's sun in San Antonio. So, yeah, I love the warm weather, so it was good. Well, um, yesterday on my way to church, I was thinking about how sweet God's Word is and that there's a scripture in Psalm 119 somewhere, and and the psalmist is talking about uh, how sweet uh, God's word is, uh, sweet to the, it's like honey to your lips type of sweet. Mm-hmm. And that made me think of a song that we sing sometimes, and one of the lines in it is, is um, may your name be always on my lips. And every time <laughs> I sing that song, it, it just strikes my heart at how personal it is to have Jesus' name on our lips. And, and how much responsibility that is to, to have his name on our lips. And it made me think about how responsible it is to have anybody's name on our lips. So that's kind of what I've been thinking of. Oh, when you asked me about what coffee I drink, I drink Black Rifle <laughs> coffee. I make a oh, big in the morning, and, and I add a bunch of hot milk to it, so it's like a latte, and then I drink quite a bit of it, and then the cup kind of follows me around all day, and I and I take a swig here and there, and <laughs> kind of lasts me all day, but I'm very picky about coffee beans, and their, their beans are really, really good, so I just wanted to let you know that. I'm going to get off the phone and let you comment on all this. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. I'm sure the Black Rifle Coffee Company appreciates your commercial forum. You know, I, just a, a little bit of information you probably don't need to know about me. I've never had a drink of coffee in my life, so I could care less about coffee beans or anything else. Um, when Cindy was talking about the question last week that she asked over coffee, I thought, wow, who thinks of those things? And Cindy does. And that was the, the, the my response about the coffee. Cindy, what I was thinking when you're asking me about the, the 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 word of God being sweet to our lips, I was thinking about Jeremiah as an example. Um, uh, he's not the only prophet, but but the most prominent, who said that when he when he ate the word of God, it was sweet to his mouth, but soured in his stomach. And and that's what we understand as believers. The word is sweet, but that same word sours the stomach 
of of those who don't know Jesus. You know, the word that brings life to us. And we rejoice. It's so sweet. But that same word brings death to people who don't believe. And that's just the powerful word of God, the double-edged sword that, that Jesus wields. Uh, I think there's an element to that double-edged sword that speaks of this very thing. The sword on one edge is sweet. On the other edge, it cuts directly to the heart. And and that's just the nature of the word. It's living and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, and and um, one of the things that always brings me a lot of sadness, Cindy, is Christians who aren't really in the word. You know, they go to churches, teach the Word, um, but, but the Word has very little or small part in their life from Sunday to Sunday. And, and I, I, they, they're just missing out. They're just missing out. And, and there's a lot of Christians who can't say the Word is sweet. It's good. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate that very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Brian speaking about the word. He says, "What is the most effective way to read the Bible, and which Bible is best?" Um, Brian, I'm going to assume because of the question you asked that you're a relatively new believer, and the most effective way for you to read the Bible is just to read it. Read it in order. Now, I don't mean you have to go from Genesis to Revelation in order, but whatever book. Remember, it's not one book; it's sixty six books. So whatever book you're reading, read it from start to finish. Don't don't uh, read a few verses here and then go to another book and read a few verses there. Read the book. Read the book. And as you become familiar with the Bible, it'll start to make sense. You'll, you'll get a sense of chronology and you'll get a sense of unity between Old Testament and New Testament. And, and the very first thing that we need to do as believers is read it. We just need to read it cover to cover. Uh, I found as a brand new believer, Brian, and I was really hungry for the word. Uh, didn't understand a lot of what I was reading, but man, was I interested. And I found that by reading 10 chapters a day, and I would read five from the Old Testament and five from the New, and there were some books that didn't have in the New Testament that didn't have five chapters. So, I just read all of the chapters that were in there, if that was the case. But but I, I discovered that I could read the Bible twice a year, just practicing that, 10 chapters a day. So that was how I did it. And then as you become a little more familiar with it, and you can start to connect books, and you can start to read and understand context, then there's a, a, a second phase of your of your study where you, you, you simply read portions of scripture again you still do it chronologically from the start to the the end of a book but for instance you might go to the gospels and read only a section of a book and and really slowly meditate on it chew on it think about it ask the holy spirit to give you some direction and insight and one of the keys to that insight is always at the end being able to say, okay, Lord, I want to know how I can use what you're teaching me today. I want to be able to apply this in my life today. And I think that's the most effective way to read the Bible. Let me give you one other hint, Brian. I think that every Christian ought to have that, that continuous reading through the Bible going all the time. I also think that we ought to have um, um, that, that, that meditative reading going all the time. And then there's a third way to read, and that's just have devotional reading. Just pick up the Bible in the morning and, again, going systematically through a book. Read until the Lord speaks to your heart. So I think those are the most effective ways to get through it. And once you do that, there are other methods of Bible study. But just get to know your Bible. It is so majestic, so powerful. Um, helps you with discernment. God will answer questions. Don't worry so much about what you don't understand. Rather, focus on being obedient to what you do understand. And if you'll do that, uh, the Holy Spirit will pour himself out on you. Now, as to which Bible is the best, uh, my preference is the 1984 NIV 
Bible. It is by far, by far, the best translation of the New Testament. Not so good in the Old Testament, but it's still okay. The problem with that is the 1984 NIV Bible is really, really difficult to find. I've got one precious lady in our church who has such a heart for the lost that she she has, has a ministry of searching for 1984 NIV Bibles, and as soon as she finds them, she runs them over to Paul and says, here's some more Bibles so that we can give them away to people. And so um, I think the 84 NIV Bible, and she's she's a detective. She can find them. Um, is the best. But but really the best is one that you're comfortable with and one that you read as long as it's an effective translation. Um, you don't want the passion translation or the, the message or, uh, or, or another paraphrase. Get a real translation. The New King James is excellent. I find myself reading the New King James more and more. Uh, I love the King James Version of the Bible. That was the Bible that uh, I had when I was a brand new believer. And its language is so memorable. I, I, I Still to this day, if I'm, I'm sharing verses by memory, it's what King James uh, says. That's what comes out of my mouth. Uh, but, but any of the Bibles, the, the, the main translations are wonderful translations. So get one, Brian, that you're comfortable with. I also can suggest one other thing as you study. I think most of us now have Bible study programs on our computers. And uh, one of the beauties about studying the Bible on your computer, now it doesn't replace turning the pages, but but one of the beauties of studying on your computer is you have access to, I on my uh, computer program, I have access to, I think, nine or ten different translations. And those are just the ones I use. There's some others that I don't use. And so I think um, that's that's uh, an effective way to study as well. Good question, Brian. I'm glad you're interested. Uh, just read. Read and read some more. Again, don't worry so much about what you don't understand. Focus on what you do understand. and Let the Holy Spirit sort of fill in the gap for you. And you will grow in the grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. And of course, that's the whole point. Jason asks, Pastor Ron, how could Jesus be fully God and fully human? Um, um, Jason, this is, this is the, 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 the mystery of God. Uh, you know, you and I, we would look if somebody's 100% of something. We, we, have, we say similar things, you know. Well, you know, I gave it my best. I gave it 110% or I gave it 150%. You can't give it more than 100%. But Jesus, because he was God, could be fully God The Bible declares that from cover to cover. But it's equally important for us to understand that he was fully human. So he was 100% God and 100% man. We add that up, it comes to 200%. But Jesus, you talk about the new math. Jesus really is the new math because he could be both. You couldn't separate his deity from his humanity. Um, You couldn't say that, well, he was um, fully God in heaven, but when he came to earth, he was fully man. He never stopped being either, of course, because God can't stop existing. God is who he is, and and, and Jesus, of course, was both of those things. The, the, the interesting thing for me about this, uh, it, it's called the kenosis of God, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Um, it's how Jesus veiled his deity. He sort of put it away while he was here occupying a human body. Because he had to live a life that would be an example to us, a life led by the Spirit, a life um, that, that, that was obedient to his Father. Um, um, he had to do it as a man. And if Jesus could do it as a human, we can do it as a human. Now, obviously, he has advantages we don't. He was without sin. He was perfect. We're not. But never one time did Jesus use his power as God for his own benefit. And so he walked this earth, having been tempted in all ways as we are, and and being tempted to a far greater degree than we are. He demonstrated that we can resist sin. He's the model. How did he do it? He walked by the Spirit. The Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove at his baptism. And from that moment, he was 
uh, led by the Spirit. Jesus didn't have any independent thoughts or actions. He didn't do what he thought was right. He only did what he heard his Father do and say. So that's really, really important. And Jason, this is one of the things that we've simply got to understand because the Bible teaches both things. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. If he wasn't fully man, then we men, humans, would never have the opportunity to approach the throne of God. Paul writes that God, who lives in unapproachable light, Jesus, because he was a man, gave us what we needed to approach that unapproachable light. Every time I think about that, Jason, it just blesses me to to no end. Good question. Paul asks, does God have a predetermined life for every human? Paul, that's a hard question. Um, um, The answer is God has a plan for every human. But as we know, we humans don't necessarily walk in that plan. We like to be independent of God. We like to kind of do our own thing. And yes, God is a perfect, pleasing, acceptable will life for every one of us. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, Greek word is poema, uh, prepared in advance for the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So there is a perfect will of God and God would love nothing more than for each and every one of us to walk in that perfect will. However, because we don't, There's another element to God. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He lives outside of time and space. And so God knows everything we're going to do. He doesn't cause everything that we're going to do. But he knows everything that we're going to do. And that means his plan can continue working for us as he puts us in places and in situations that that he intends for us to use to be drawn back to him. You know, uh, uh, we've talked about this, Paul and I, on, on the Thursday show. And she has a, a little Rubik's Cube. We, we've got Rubik's Cube. I've got a couple of them in this office. But um, um, that, that's kind of a picture of what God does. You know, we, we, we walk outside of God's will, and our Rubik's Cube of life gets all messed up. And I, I always have a picture of Jesus in heaven going, as he changes the Rubik's Cube, and everything is back in order again. And Paul, the wonderful thing about God is that the moment we say, God, I'm sorry for doing my own thing. Please forgive me. He puts us right back in the middle of his perfect will. And we don't have to go outside of that will again. Now we do because we like to. We, we we're rebels by nature. But every time we repent, every time we ask for forgiveness, every time we draw near to God and he draws near to us, then instantly our Rubik's Cubes are perfect again. And your life, Paul, and my life is just another Rubik's Cube in the hand of a God who loves us. So God has a perfect will for everybody's life. But when we reject that will and do our own thing, God knew we were going to do it. Uh, and he puts us back on the potter's wheel and we, we start getting to that place where we're seeking after his will for our life again. So God doesn't make us do things. He doesn't cause us to do things. But believe me, God who knows everything has that perfect will laid out for our lives. Here is an anonymous question. Would you comment on Black Lives Matter and whether or not Christians should support them? Anonymous. Um, I don't want this program to turn into political issues. Uh, I want to talk about Jesus. I can tell you that Black Lives Matters is anti-Jesus, and that means by definition we who are Christians should not support them. Now, I, I want to be clear, every life matters, and every black life that is suffered matters a great deal to God. And if black lives really mattered, Um, I'm going to go on a limb and say something that I might get in trouble for. If black people want their lives to matter, they'll come to Jesus. They'll come to Jesus. This world isn't going to solve your problems. Jesus will be with you through the difficult times. He will bless you as a result of your faith and perseverance. 
But the organization Black Lives Matter is anything but Christian in nature. In fact, they're haters of God, and they've made that really, really clear. They're haters of the family. They're haters of traditional biblical marriage. And we've got to understand that. By the way, Black Lives Matter is in a bit of trouble right now because you got Black Lives Matter leaders now, not not regular people, but leaders of the Black Lives Movement have been very supportive of the Castro regime in Cuba. And now that Cuba is starting to blow up, um, they're getting a lot of pushback from, from other people of color, Cuban-Americans, who, who are calling them cowards and racists and and worse, uh, because Black Lives Matter is also a communist organization. That's their ideology, and they make no bones about it. This isn't me just editorializing. They themselves proudly declare it, and that's why they can support the Castro regime and not worry about offending the people of color in Cuba that have been abused and marginalized for now 60 years. So Christians should not support Black Lives Matter. Of course, every Christian should support every black life that matters. And I think you understand the distinction between what I'm saying. 340-9585 Oliver asks a really important question. He says, what does being a lukewarm Christian mean? Uh, Oliver, it's not going to be too long before I'm I'm in Revelation chapter 3 and teaching on the church at Laodicea where Jesus says uh, to them, he says, you're neither hot nor cold. Uh, You're, 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 lukewarm and you make me sick and it's literally what the language is I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth so being a lukewarm Christian means somebody who really isn't committed to following Jesus a lukewarm Christian is a Christian who says yeah I'm going to heaven and that's good but you know I don't think I have to worry about all the rules I don't need to belong to a church I don't need to read the Bible I'm fine just knowing I'm going to heaven that's what being a lukewarm Christian is now the problem is the devil is powerful to deceive and a lot of those Christians who think it's fine going to heaven and find out that they're not going to make it to heaven because they've never really been born again And when Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea, he says, I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. And the reason he would say that, as stunning as that statement is, is because the lukewarm Christian is not being honest. The the, the man or the woman who says, you know, I go to church, but I don't want to care about all that Christian stuff. We have people in church every, every week, in every church, by the way, who are sitting there as I'm teaching the Bible here at our church, every 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 time we open the Bible, there are people who are sitting there saying, ah, I don't believe in that. You know, we talk about um, uh, sexuality, homosexuality, or, or, or being transgender. And they say, ah, it's not that big a deal. It has to be a big deal to God. If it's a big deal to God as a Christian, it has to be a big deal to us. So a lukewarm Christian is somebody who is, you know, one step in the world, one foot in the world, rather, and one foot in church, and they're really neither committed to to either place. And Jesus says, basically, choose a side. I'd rather you be honest and say you don't want anything to do with me than to be dishonest and say, yeah, I I love you, and I'm grateful that I've got saved, but I'm really not going to be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So a lukewarm Christian, by definition, is disobedient, Um, ill-concerned about the things of Christ and just basically trying to get through life, enjoying as much as they can here on this world and still get to heaven. So I hope that makes sense to you, Oliver. Here's what I can tell you. Don't be a lukewarm Christian, Oliver. Philip says, is it ever okay to lie? The answer to the question is no. It's never okay to lie. Now, we lie because of our flesh. I said the first half of the program, flesh stinks. And every lie is, is an act of the flesh. It's, it's not a, a fruit of the Spirit of God. It's a bad fruit of our flesh. It's never okay to give way to your flesh. So no, it's not ever okay to lie. Jesus said the devil is the father of lies, literally the originator of lies. And, and said lying is his native language. 
So, Philip, how can it be okay for us to, to, to figuratively speak the devil's language? Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if he's the truth and we claim to belong to him, how can we not walk in the truth? Now, whenever I say this, Philip, people say, well, sometimes you have to lie to not to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't think you have to lie not to hurt somebody's feelings. Sometimes you don't need to say anything at all, but you don't have to lie. You have to lie at work because everybody else does. I remember uh, just right after I got saved in the car dealership that I, I ran, Philip, I, I first sales meeting was... If you ever, I'm warning you up front, if you ever tell a lie and I find out, you will be fired. And they wondered, how can you sell cars without lying? Well, as a Christian, you can't lie. I realized they weren't Christians, they were going to lie, but I, I didn't want them to misrepresent me because I was a believer. So it's never okay to lie. Now, people will say, but, but Rahab is in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Yeah, she is, but her lie was a result of the weakness of, of her faith. Remember, she didn't know Israel's God. She believed because of what she saw, but she was pretty much a pagan until she believed. And so as a brand new believer, I lied a lot as a brand new believer. For a year, I lied. So that's what we've got to understand. You can't lie. It's displeasing to the Lord. Be a truth teller, Philip. Be a truth teller. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. Um, we'd love some more calls on tomorrow's program. Remember, tonight at 7 o'clock is our Sweet Summer Devotion Series. Ladies, we'd love for you to be here uh, in person with us. Thanks for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.